0: The Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2, and we'll read the first 12 verses. John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there was six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus And Lord, we are so thankful, Father, to have your word with us. We're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that we can know you in Christ Jesus. Lord, we just pray as we have read your word that you would now add your blessings to the reading of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, In studying the book of John, you're going to find that we're going to find that about chapters 1 through 12 is going to tell us about some signs that he did as well as messages that he taught and preached, uh, and these were for a specific purpose. The signs, which the one we read of this morning, the turning of the water into wine, was the first of his signs that he had did, uh, will find that the purpose for them was to show that he was God, that he was the Son of God. In fact, the book of John tells us that these things are written that you may believe in him. So that's the purpose. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants people to read this book and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, we sit here today and we say, well, sure, I believe in Jesus Christ. And that's good, but do we have a true belief in him? There is a difference in believing his existence and a saving faith that is placing our faith in him and in him alone, the Bible tells us in the book of James that even the devils in hell, the demons, believe in him and tremble. Do we truly trust in him? And that's, what, that's the result that the Gospel of John is wanting to produce in us. As we look at this particular text, uh, we're going to go through this miracle, go through the story, uh, and kind of draw some things from it and go through it. Line upon line, and then we're going to go back at the end and kind of briefly give you several points about the wine itself. Uh, But first of all, let's go back to verse 1. It says, On the third day, now it's important to know what John is speaking about there when he says, On the third day, this is the third day after his last encounter with the disciples who he called. So here he was with his disciples, you remember, he called. Peter, uh, and James, uh, Andrew, and then Philip, and, uh, and so he was calling them. This is three days after that encounter. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and these are probably those four or five disciples that he had just called. So anyway, Uh, We need to understand some things about a wedding during this time. This was a big time in the life of somebody, as it is for us, but this was a time for the entire community to enjoy. Now, this was in Cana of Galilee, which is just a few miles from Nazareth, uh, where Jesus was raised and where these disciples really were raised. And so, this is really their hometown, this is their home territory. They know each other, that's why they've been invited to this wedding. They've built relationships, built friendships. They've watched each other grow up. These are family, an extended family, and so they are, are well-known in this area. But Jesus had not yet revealed himself to do any mighty works, to do any miracles, because he's only beginning his ministry. But we find that he was invited to this wedding. Now in this, we're going to see that this is the first sign, uh, first miracle that Jesus would do. And in something that's interesting here, uh, as we think about this miracle The place he chose to do it is significant. The time he chose to do it is significant. He chose to do it at a wedding. He chose to honor the institution of marriage by performing his first miracle there. That should speak to us. That should tell us something. That how his view of marriage. That marriage is something that is important. Marriage is something that Jesus himself Honored with his presence. Marriage is something that was significant and important and spiritual, and he would even, as he teaches later on, he's going to use the thought of marriage, and talk about how it was something that was permanent, it's something that is binding, it's something that was given by God, and it should be honored by all. So I think that should speak to us. And as I was reading over this this week and reading behind some other uh, uh, men, I, I began to pray even for the marriages of this church. Uh, God really burdened my heart to pray for our marriages, that, that God would strengthen them because I, I begin to think about all of the enemies and all of the t- attacks that comes against them. Now, I want you to understand something, that, that as we've said, he honored this wedding. So there's something special about uh, marriage. There's something special about this institution. But that doesn't just limit that, limit his, um, the honor to a wedding, Honor his, uh, uh, limit it to that. But we even know that, that he has a purpose even for people who are not married. Uh, it's, it's not that, that this is the only right way to do it if you're not this, and you're not that important in the kingdom of God. That's not the case at all. Jesus himself was never married. So we see that he honors marriage and he also honors being single. But anyway, so it says on the third day they were invited to the wedding. And so what we find next in verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We see this kind of strange transaction between Jesus and his mother. What in the world is going on here? Well, first of all, we see uh, this is a very important time, as we've already said, this wedding. And this was also a time when you would show off a little bit. When you would, uh, you wanted people to, to know that you were really prepared. Because a year before this, the young man and his family had gotten together with the young lady and her family. And the, the, the uh, betrothal had started about a year before Now, a betrothal is what we would kind of consider an engagement, except it's more legally binding. The only way you could break a betrothal would be by divorce. Uh, Though the marriage was not consummated until the wedding took place a year later. But during that year, what the husband would do is he would go and he would begin to prepare a place... For His bride to come. He would begin to build a home or even build an extension off of his family's home or whatever. He would begin to build and prepare and save money until the day of the wedding. And also he was saving money uh, to to really have this wedding. He did it all. Uh, And you wanted to have just enough food for everybody. You wanted to have just enough drink for everybody. You wanted to have everything just right. So People knew, this was one way they could see, can you take care of this lady or the father? Can you take care of my daughter? If you can't even put together a proper wedding, then how in the world can you take care of my daughter? So he really wanted everything to go just right, but something happened and it didn't. This was a wedding they would usually last about seven days. It's not just one afternoon like we have, it would last for seven days. It would be a a feast that lasted that long. And so you had to have just enough of everything. Well, on one of the days of this wedding, the wine ran out. And this was important to them. This was something they needed to have, one of the staples of the wedding. And so Mary came to Jesus. Mary evidently was uh, helping to serve because she knew about the need and she brought the need to Jesus and wanted to see something done. But when she came to Jesus, she told Jesus that the wine had ran out. Now, something I think we need to see here. Again, we're just going to go through this miracle line upon line and then come back and give you the points. But anyway, so she came to Jesus. We have no indication that Mary thought Jesus would perform a miracle on this day. The reason we have no indication of that is because Jesus had never performed a miracle up until this day. Jesus didn't turn water into wine on a regular basis when he was a child. Jesus didn't heal people or anything like that. He started on this day. Mary came to Jesus not so he would perform a miracle. Mary came to Jesus because he was reliable. Can you think of anyone more reliable than the Son of God? When Mary would find herself in a hard place and she needed something done, she needed to help on making a decision or needed help on getting something ready, she may ask her other children, and of course, just as children do, just as teenagers might do, might roll your eyes and might not want to do what she asked you to do and have that kind of relationship, but... Jesus didn't do that. Jesus never rolled, her eye, rolls, rolled his eyes at her. Jesus never uh, sighed deeply at her. Jesus never disobeyed her. Jesus did just what she told him to do, and he did it to the best of his ability, and he had the best solutions for problems all the time. So this was a natural thing for Mary to come to Jesus and ask him to help with the situation. So this isn't strange, but what seems strange to us is the next part. Jesus' response to Mary. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, automatically, if, uh, if, if a mother here was to go to your child and would, to ask them to do something, and they looked at you and they said, woman, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be respectful. But now, that's not what Jesus was doing. You see, in, in, for him, woman was basically their expression of Ma'am. It wasn't disrespectful, it wasn't endearing either, mother would have been endearing, but it, it, was, it was showing a polite distance is what it was doing. He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? And when you go back and understand what this phrase actually means, what does this have to do with me, he's drawing a comparison between himself and her. What does this have to do with me or you? He's saying, what, what do I have to do with this? What do we have in common? Now, the reason Jesus is saying this is not to be disobedient. He was the perfect son of God. It was not to be disrespectful because there wasn't a disrespectful bone in his body. But something had changed from the last time Mary asked Jesus to do her bidding until now. Something had changed. What had changed is Jesus had begun his earthly ministry. You see, Jesus couldn't be going about doing what he was doing and Mary come and get him and say, hey, I need you to come back to the house and do this. Because Jesus had other things. He was now working, uh, doing the Father's work only. You see, he obeyed his mother perfectly. He honored his mother perfectly. But then there came a day—not when he wouldn't honor his mother anymore, but that he, he was not under his mother's authority as far as, as such—and he would go out and he would do the thing that God had called him to do, all going all the way to the cross. So Jesus was letting Mary know that those days are over. Those days are past. Now I'm working for the Father. I'm doing the Father's work and I'm going to do everything that he wants me to do. And then he said, my hour has not yet come. Well, what does that mean? This is an expression, my hour, that you will see several times in the book of John. And it's referring to his death and resurrection. Jesus is saying this, Mary, mother, my purpose is no longer to serve you. My purpose is no longer to drop what I'm doing to do what you want me to do. My purpose is to die on the cross and be raised again for the sins of the world. And you need to understand this and you need to respect this and give me the distance that we need. That's what Jesus was telling you. He said, my, my hour has not yet come. Jesus Christ was laser focused on the cross. Nothing was going to take his attention. They would be off of the cross. There would be times when even his own disciples, Peter, would say... Jesus would tell his disciples, I will not let you die. And Jesus told Peter, get behind me Satan! for what you're saying is not of God. That nothing was going to take Jesus' attention off the cross. Not his mother, not his disciples, not anybody. Jesus knew what he came to do and he was going to do it. And that's what he is telling Mary here. I'm working on God's timetable, not anybody else's. And then verse 5 says, His mother said to us, said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you, and then she leaves. Now, we're going to see that Jesus does what Mary wanted him to do. Is there a contradiction here? He just said, I don't work on your timetable. Now he's going to go back and he's going to meet her need and do exactly what she wanted in a miraculous way. No, it's not a contradiction. What it is, is this just happened to be on God's timetable. If it wasn't on God's timetable, if this wasn't something that God wanted to do at that moment, he would not have done it. That's what he just told Mary. But it just so happens, not because Mary asked, but because it was something that was in God's plan for Christ that he was going to do it. So she instructs the servants to do whatever he tells you. And I think this is good instructions for all of us. Whatever Jesus says, we should do it. Whatever uh, his word tells us to do, we should go out of our way to do it. We should be obedient to him. We should be loving to him. We should be honoring of him and we should obey what he tells us to do. Whatever he tells you, do it. That's the instructions that we should live by. That's the instructions that we should teach our children. That no matter what the world says, no matter what anybody else says, you need to do exactly what Jesus says. Now moving on to verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So now what we see here is Jesus is going about in his own way to do this thing. Now again, Mary wasn't expecting a miracle. Mary was expecting help from her son. But now Jesus tells the servants to go to the water jars. Now uh, this is strange because the water jars have nothing to do with wine. These water jars, their purpose was not to hold wine. Their purpose was to hold water for purification. You see, the Jews had some things that they would do. Uh, They always wanted to be ceremonially clean for anything they would do before they would eat. It wasn't necessarily for the purpose of washing germs off your hand because they didn't know what germs were. But in order to be clean spiritually, ceremonially, and to be able to go into the temple and worship, they had to constantly be cleaning themselves and purifying themselves. So they had these water jars for that purpose. They weren't meant for wine. They were meant for water for cleansing. Jesus said, go and fill them up. So they would go to a well, and they would get water out of the well, and they would fill up the water jars. And uh, what we see here is they each held about 20 to 30 gallons. There were six stone water jars, so a lot of water. Then Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So it says they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, Now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants knew, uh, the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then pour wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So, what we see here is Jesus is about to perform this miracle. He says, fill the water jars up with water. They fill the water jars up with water. Remember, Mary had just told them, do whatever he says to do. So they fill the water jars up with water. To the brim, to the point of overflowing. Now Jesus said, now go and get something and scoop the water out. And bring it to the master of the the wedding. To the one who's in charge. So they do this. And when they do this, I I can't imagine what's going on in the servants' minds. Because they have never seen a miracle take place. As far as we know, they've never seen Jesus do anything like this. But they do exactly what he says to do. They bring it to the master. And there the master goes and takes the water and is going to put it to his lips. And the servants are like, here it is. We're about to be fired. He wants wine and we're giving him water. He's going to get mad. It's going to be our fault. And we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Because it's just water he's about to drink. But when he drinks it, a smile comes on his face. And he says, in amazement. And he says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Now, we need to understand some things about this wine. That, that they did not have refrigeration. They didn't have refrigeration. So when you would squeeze the squeeze the grapes and, and produce it, It was going to begin to ferment. So they had to do things. So they they did have wine. But this wasn't wine just as we know it. It was alcoholic wine. But it was not that strong. What they would do is they would take two parts water. And one part wine. And mix it. And when they would mix it. You see they couldn't just drink. Unless they boiled it. They couldn't just drink the water they drew. Because it was full of impurities. So when they would take take some of that wine. With the alcohol in it. It would kind of make it to where it was better to drink. So that's what they had. And so this man said, this is the best wine I've ever had. Why did you save the best till last? He didn't know what happened, but the servants, they were shocked because they knew exactly what happened. And then it says in verse 11, this, the first of the signs, Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here we have the, the, the story of the miracle. Now, I want to focus in on wine. Why in the world would Jesus choose wine to to, to do this, to be his first miracle? Well, wine has a purpose. Usually in the Old Testament, now we know if if people drink too much, and always, this is something that we need to know, we need to understand this, to drink too much wine, we get drunk, to be drunk is a sin. Uh, It's always a sin. There is nowhere in the Bible where it's not a sin. It's a sin to get drunk. But that's not really always the purpose. There, there would be times in the Psalms or even in some of the other Old Testament books where it would speak of wine as, as a source of joy or wine. as If you have wine, uh, plenty of wine, then you must have uh, means and you must be wealthy. So it's a picture of joy and it's a picture of having plenty. And so that's what we're taking this. That, that's what Jesus is showing here. That the reason to have this wine, the reason he chose to do his first miracle with wine, because wine is symbolic for joy and blessings. So we're going to look at some things about this wine. Four quick things about the wine. Number one, we see the quantity of the wine. The quantity of the wine. Remember that there were six water jars. Uh, and they, they filled each of them up. And Jesus turned all of the water that was in these water jars, he turned them all into wine. And so now we see plenty of wine. When Jesus does this, or when Jesus does something, bringing salvation, we said that the have wine is also a picture of joy. It's a picture of the joy of Christ that comes in our heart. When Christ comes in, when we repent of our sins and trust Jesus as our Savior, we have been given joy from the Holy Spirit. We have been given joy in Christ Jesus. And the quantity he gives, he gives us to the point of overflowing. If you go back to John chapter 1 and, and, and find where... Uh, he's describing salvation, what Jesus brings to us in verse sixteen. Uh, For from him we have all we have all received. Grace upon grace. You see, uh, they had more than enough wine to finish the rest of the days of this wedding off with. And so what Jesus did, Jesus supplies more than what we need. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. When he saves us, he saves us to the uttermost. He saves us completely. Where we will never, uh, you remember in, in, in John chapter 4, where the woman has the water at the well and she is offer the water of Christ and the water of life. And then the, he says you'll never thirst again. That's what Jesus gives us. That's what he offers to us. Salvation that we don't have to come back later and want more. He gives us the quantity and he gives us an amount that will never thirst again. And we, we won't be coming back next Sunday saying, Lord, you've got to save me again. I've, done, I've lost it. Would you do something to give me again? What he does in our hearts when he gives us this, wine of the Spirit, this joy from the Lord, we are satisfied forever throughout eternity. Because we see that for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not something that will be around for a little while today and go away tomorrow, but the quantity He gives us is great. But not only do we see the quantity of this wine, we see the quality. You remember when the master of the feast said the master of the wedding said you saved the best for last that's not our traditions usually you give us uh the 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 best wine first and then later on when it's about to turn out then you give us the worst but that's not what you've done you've given us the best the quality of salvation that christ gives us is immeasurable he gives us salvation that uh, that that cannot be given by any other source We can look to religion today, and religion may help feel or take care of some guilt in our lives for a little while, but it doesn't last. We may look to money or we may look to friendships. We may look to relationships to help us for a little while in this life. But the quality that those things gives us is not great. It's not just like the salvation that Christ gives. But the quality of of salvation that he gives will last us forever. And it's the best possible. And just as the master of this feast said that you've saved the best for last. You've given us the best. We also see that takes place at salvation. Also in the quality Something that, that, that we need to see from this text is Jesus is drawing us a comparison. And here's the comparison. What they've been used to, the religion that they've been used to is the religion of the Judaizers. You need to live life uh, according to the law, not to keep God's law, but keep our laws that we've added. You need to do this. You need to live it perfectly. If you mess up, well, then you just messed up and now you, you've got to Come back and start all over again. Uh, it was it was a very legalistic religion. It was something that did not satisfy. It did not give people what they needed. But now Jesus comes in with this new wine of the covenant. You know that's what he calls it when he gives the Lord's Supper I, I, towards the end of his life. He said, "This is the new covenant in my blood." So he gives us the wine of the new covenant. He gives us himself, which is. the the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he replaces that old religious system where we don't have to work for salvation. We don't have to strive for it. It's not something we have to worry about having or not, but it's something that the Lord Jesus gives us in in quantity and in quality that we don't have to look anywhere else for it. So the quality, the quantity, also the timeliness. They receive this wine right on time. If, if, if it had gotten out, if word had gotten out to the people that they had ran out of the wine, they would have blamed the groom and would have thought low of the groom. But Jesus brought it just in time. Jesus rescued us just in time. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent his son. We also notice, lastly, the cost of the wine. Do you know what this wine, the wine this good would have cost a lot of money? But do you know what it cost the grain? Not one dime. It didn't cost him anything. The salvation that Christ brings to us is free. That's, what's, that's something that is so amazing about the grace of God. The grace that he gives to us. The grace that he supplies us with is free. Now it cost him everything. On the cross he bore Uh, The wrath of God. On the cross he suffered for our sins. On the cross he paid it all. To the point where he said it is finished. There's nothing else that can be paid. There's nothing else that can be added. But that's what he did. He paid it all so we could have salvation for free. And that's what he offers to us today. So we see this wine. The reason he chose to use wine is unique. It's special. And the reason it was so important is because wine is a picture of the goodness of God in this text. And so he wants people to receive freely. But then we see at the end, in verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. What he did, only God could do. So this was his first statement. His first statement, and he did it for his disciples. He did it for those who watched him grow up. His family, his friends, his neighbors. And he showed them first, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah come to earth. If you want salvation, you must come through me. He manifested his glory. And then it says, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus wanted his disciples to believe in him because they would bring it to the world so that the world could believe on him. And if the ones he gave it to at first didn't believe on him, then it would do no good for others. But what he did is he was showing his disciples just how good he was. He was showing his disciples just how God he was so that they would believe. And so I I started it off like this and I'll end it like this. Do we believe that Jesus is exactly who He said He was? Do we believe that He is the Son of God? That He is the Messiah? That He died on the cross for our sins? And that He brings us what nothing else can bring us? Just as He brought the wine that nobody else can bring, He brings salvation that originates in Himself and can come from no one else. Do we believe? If we believe, how has that changed our life? How does that move us in this life? Has it moved us to tell others about the goodness of God? Has it moved us to share the message with others, to tell others about what Christ can do? I know this may be strange to us and how he used wine and all of that, but did he use it for a purpose? And the purpose is He alone can bring joy in our lives. Will we bring that to others? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Once again, good morning. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. John chapter 2, when you find your place, we'll begin reading in verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray, Father. Lord, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus, and once again, we are so thankful to call you our God. We pray as we read your word and learn some things about Jesus, God, that you would help us and you would open up our hearts and minds, and it's in his name we pray, amen. We've been studying now in the Gospel of John, and last week, we spoke about how he did his first sign. And the reason he's doing signs, and you'll see that word throughout the Gospel of John, he is giving people signs that he is the Son of God. The Gospel of John tells us that these things are written that you may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know, he wants us to see what he's done, and he wants us to know exactly who he is uh, and so we, as we look at this, as we study this out, we come to another portion of Scripture, now in verses 13 through 17. And really the story continues down past verse 18, but we're going to stop at 17 this morning. And we find a story where Jesus uh, does something that is shocking. Jesus does something that some people would say should be out of character for Jesus to do. Uh, When we think about Jesus, people say, well, you need to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? We need to do what Jesus would do. And that's love people and speak kindly to people and speak softly to people and always be nice and never get upset about anything. That may be sometimes what's thought when they say we need to be like Jesus and act like Jesus. Except when we go to the scriptures, we find that that's not always what Jesus did. We know that he was... Uh, he He loved greatly, he was kind, he was humble, but there were times when what we see coming from Christ is his justice and his judgment, and maybe what we would consider to be harshness, but we still see it coming, so we need to know Jesus, and we need to know everything about Jesus, not just the parts that make us comfortable. we need to know everything about jesus and so, as we look at this particular text. As we study it, we find what is being talked about here is worship. Uh, God desires to be worshipped. We find that even in the Old Testament. Uh, when he's giving the commandments, he, he commands that, they, that the people of Israel worship no other gods. And he eventually will give specific instructions on how he wants to be worshipped. So we see in that that God who is the only one in the universe who deserves worship, also gets to tell you how to worship Him. Later on in the Gospel of John, in fact in John chapter 4, Jesus will say that God desires people to worship Him, and He wants them to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we'll get to that and explain more what that means as we come to that text. But not only does God get to explain how He wants to be worshipped, God also gets to say how He doesn't want, To be worshipped. Well, we may think, well, as long as I'm worshipping God, as long as I'm talking about Jesus, as long as I'm saying nice things about God, then God accepts our worship. But we find that that is wrong in the Word of God and here in this gospel, we find that God does not accept all forms of worship. If if he gets to decide how he wants to be worshipped, he also gets to decide how he does not want to be worshipped. And the people in this text were doing something that did not please him. We will find that it offended him. And not only did it offend him, it also invited his judgment. And a picture of judgment on their lives for the way they were acting. So as we look at this text... We're going to go verse by verse from verses 13 through 17. First of all, we see that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to look at, we're going to divide this into two sections. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus had a love for the worship of God. Jesus had a love for the worship of God. And then as we look at the rest of it, we're going to see that Jesus had zeal for the worship of God. So Jesus had love for the worship of God and Jesus had great zeal for the worship of God. First of all, he had love for the worship of God. We see that in the fact that what time and what days it was in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now what is the Passover? Well, you have to go all the way back to your Old Testament to find that out in the book of Exodus when the people of Israel had been in bondage by the Egyptians for hundreds of years and now... God is ready to deliver his people out. God sent Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, and he would not. He, they went through plagues, nine plagues of one, thing, one bad thing after the other. And Pharaoh would say, well, I'll let them go now. And then he would change his mind, and he wouldn't let them go. And God told Moses that he had one more plague, one more hard time for Pharaoh. And God said, after I'm finished, he will drive you out. Not only will he give you permission to leave, he will force you and the people of Israel to leave. And we know what that was. We go back in the book of Exodus. We find that God said he's going to send his death angel. And he's going to visit every home in Egypt. Uh, and, and, And that when this death angel comes to every home, he is going to kill the firstborn of every family. And the firstborn of every family will die except... For those homes that had the blood of a lamb uh, on the doorpost and over the door, and he gave the instructions on how he wanted that done. So the people of Israel did that, and they instruct they were instructed what they were supposed to do. And that night the death angel did come, and he killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt that did not have blood around the, the door, and even the son of Pharaoh himself was killed. And so what we see from that is after that. Uh, the people of Israel were delivered. They were safe in their homes. Uh, Pharaoh drove them out of Egypt. And then God set. A, a, it was like a holiday. A holy day. That what they would do from there on out. Is that they would meet back on this particular day. You would come back into Jerusalem. You would celebrate the feast of the Passover. And you would celebrate. Much like we celebrate Christmas. What he did 2,000 years ago. In sending his son to be born of a virgin. Or what we, how we celebrate Christmas. Um, Easter in that, that he, the Son of God died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave uh, three days later. We celebrate that. We remember that. We have some things in place that we uh, make much of those days. And that's what they were doing. And now this was the time of Passover when they would come and they would eat the Passover meal. People would come from all around. So we see that the Passover of the Jews had come. But then what we see next, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was God himself. What use did he have in having to keep rules or having to keep certain things? But he did it. And why did he do it? It wasn't to make himself better. It wasn't to go and have prayer and ask God to forgive him sins because he had no sins. Uh, he needed none of those things to be God. He needed none of those things to be perfect. But he still went up. And he still participated in the Passover meal. Because, and here's why, because... Uh, His love for it. We see that Jesus loved the worship of God. And we see that through two things we're going to look at quickly. First of all, His presence. He was there. Jesus showed up. Jesus did not miss. In fact, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John itself, uh, we, it covers a span of three years over Jesus' life, and three times it shows us him going back to Jerusalem and uh, worshiping and, and, and do, taking part in the Passover meal. As you go back and study, even in the book of John and other Gospels, there were other. There were actually three, um, three feast days that the Jews had to come all the way back to Jerusalem. For those who didn't live in Jerusalem, they would all have to come and congregate there. It was Passover. It was, uh, and help me if I miss one, it was Passover. It was the Feast of, of, of Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks. Those were the three feast days that Jews would have to come back to Jerusalem. And Jesus didn't miss any of them. He was there. He was present. Why was He present? He was present because He loved the worship of God. He was there because his heart was there before he was even there. Uh, you had you, you didn't there was there was no excuses that Jesus Christ would offer. Well, I don't feel so good today. Well, I'm feeling a little depressed because I know what's coming at the cross. Or I have other things to do. I have messages to preach over here. I have people to heal over there. I'm a busy man. I have more things to do than go to Jerusalem. Drop what I'm doing to go to Jerusalem and and take part in the Passover. But he didn't offer any of those excuses. Jesus went and he went because it was time to go. And he went because he wanted to go. He was faithful to be present at the times of worship. Every week when they would meet at a synagogue. And a synagogue were places away from the temple where they would meet on a weekly basis. And hear the word of God read and explained. It was basically their weekly services. Time after time after time you see Jesus meeting at a synagogue. Uh, either being the one doing the preaching or even listening to the Word of God being read and explained. So this was something that he made a part of his life and he wouldn't miss it for anything. What does this have to do with us? We, as as Christ, love the worship of God. As Christ takes the worship of God seriously and loves it, so we should take it seriously and love the worship of God. It's something that we should be drawn to. It's something that we shouldn't have to make excuses uh, to not be a part of. Uh, There shouldn't even be a question. I understand there are things uh, of necessity like physical illnesses or work or things like that that demand our attention. But if it's where we can, and, 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 and other things, something else has to be extreme to pull us away. But if it's where we can and we are able to be there, we're going to be there. We're going to worship God. We're going to honor God with our presence among His people. Why? Because we love Him. It's not because we were just raised to do it. If we only go to church because we were raised to go to church, then it has, it's maybe taken hold in our mind, but it's not taken hold in our hearts. It's not something that we love. But we need to do it not just because someone told us to do it, not because we were raised to do it or develop habits, which we should do all of those things, but we go and we're faithful and we're there because we love it. Jesus was faithful to the worship of God. He was faithful to be present. But not only do we see that he was Though he loved it because he was there on this particular day. He understood its significance. Uh, this also tells us that, as we've already said, his, not only his presence, but his piety. He was religious. He religiously did it. He was there every time the doors were open. He was there every time it was time to go back. So we see His presence and we see His piety that He loved to be there. He went because it was Passover and He went because He loved it and there was nothing going to take Him away from that and we see the Word of God telling us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as as is the manner of some. We should love the Word of God. We should love the people of God. We should love the place of God just just as much as we love God. We love to come here and we want to be a part of it, and we show our love for God by showing our love for the worship of God. So, Jesus had a love for the worship of God. But not only did Jesus have a love for the worship of God, and we see this through His presence and His piety, Jesus had a zeal for the worship of God. Jesus had a zeal. I was trying to explain this a little while ago to Bryson, as I was telling him kind of what I was going to be speaking about this morning from the text. And... How do you explain to to zeal or to be zealous? Well, I said it's to be passionate about something. To be passionate about something. I said, you wouldn't want someone talking about your family. If someone, you love your family, and there's been times that I may go visit some family in Louisiana, and my brother will begin to mess with me, as brothers do, and Bryson will step in the way and he won't let him touch me. He's come to blows with my brother, his uncle, over that. He he don't want anybody to touch me. And so, he's passionate about his daddy. He's passionate about his family. Well, Jesus was passionate about his father's house. Jesus was passionate about how people worshipped his father. It was that important to him because he loved it and because he was zealous for it. So we're going to see Jesus doing something here that seems strange. It seems By the way, that some people read the scriptures almost out of character, though it was not out of character, it was right in line with his character because he's holy and he's just. And so we're going to see this beginning in verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins on the money uh, of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons to take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now it's important that we understand what's going on in this passage. It's important that we understand what was right and what was wrong. What the people were doing right. See, everything they were doing wasn't wrong. But there was something about it that was wrong and we're going to talk about that. So let's get a picture of this. When people would come, I told you that they would come from all over three times a year Uh, especially on the Passover. This was really the big one, if you could say that. And they would come from all over uh, for travel, sometimes hundreds of miles away, and they would come back to Jerusalem for this time of worship. Well, uh, coming from other nations, they had money from the nations that they lived in. But when you came to the temple, you also paid a temple tax. It's just, it was something that was set up and they did it. They did it every year. But when you paid the temple tax, you could only pay it in Jewish money. It was the only way you could do You couldn't use other forms of money. You had to use the right money to pay the temple tax. They didn't accept the Gentile money. So they would have money changers there, as what we do. If you've ever been to a foreign country, one of the first things you may do is go to a place and, and do some money exchange. You give them American money, you receive their money, and that's just how you do that. Well, that's what they were doing. They can it was a needed thing. It was something that it was a it was a service that, that had to be presented. And so that's what they were doing. That's what the money changers was about. But then you have the animals. What's the, what's the deal with the animals there? Well, as people travel from far away, it would be very difficult at times to travel with all these animals. Uh, It would be difficult today. Um, Imagine having to make a 100-mile journey and you have a sheep, you have a goat, you have a cow, you have pigeons and all of these things that you're having to carry with you in order to give the proper sacrifice. So what people would do is they would gather there and they would have animals that were pure. They would have animals that uh, were exactly the way they needed to be, the way the law required. And they would sell them to the people as they came. Here, don't bring animals all the way from your home. We have them here that you can come and you can buy and give them as a sacrifice. So that's what they were doing. Both of these things, in and of themselves, was not wrong. It was something that was done for a long time. The problem was, the problem was the place where they were doing it. That was the problem. The place they were. Now later on, uh, if you, and you look in some of the other gospels, you find that Jesus didn't just do this once. He did it twice. He did it this time in the beginning of his ministry, and he did it another time at the end of his ministry. And when he did at the end of his ministry, the reason he did it and it explains it is they were overcharging the people for the animals. They were overcharging the people for the money exchange, and they were stealing. And he said, don't make my father's house a den of thieves. Do you remember that? But that's not exactly what they're doing in this text. They were just... Providing the services and doing it seems to be from the text how they were supposed to be doing except where they were doing it. We need to understand the temple. In the temple, and I'm not going to give you a a, a blueprint of it, but I'm just going to give you kind of a, a rough outline. You have the temple itself. Inside of the temple is this great big structure. And inside of the temple you have the holy place. And the holy place there 's the table of show there 's the lampstand there 's the altar of incense and it 's where the priests go and they, they the, the breads there offered to God, and the priests can eat it once all this is done uh, the, the The lampstand is lit all the time in in an expression of worship and expression of God being the light, and then you have the altar of incense that they 're offering as prayers of the saints as the the, the the incense goes up. This is a picture of the saints praying to God beyond. The holy place is the most holy of holies. And in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. You remember in the Old Testament he instructed them to build an ark. And there was two cherubs on it with their wings touching. And in the middle between them was the mercy seat. And this is where the, once a year when they killed the sacrifice, part of that blood would be brought in into the holy of holies. And the priest not just the priests, don't go in this place. The priests can go into the holy place. But in the holy of holies, that's where only the high priest ...of that year can go. And he enters behind this great thick curtain... ...into the presence of God... ...and he drops some of the blood on the mercy seat... ...and he presents it to God... ...asking for forgiveness of the sins of the people. This is something they did every year. But so that is what's in the temple proper. In the temple. Then outside, just outside of that... ...you have a particular court... ...that certain people can come to. Generally men can come to. And then outside of that court... ...was the court of the women... And then that's where the women could go. They could go no further. The men went further. And then there's the holy place. And so they have this section and that section. And then outside the court of the women is the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is basically outside of a gate. And it's still still considered the temple. It's still a part of the temple mount. But it's outside of... Uh, The the Jewish women come in, the Jewish men come in, and the priests come in. And the Gentiles are pushed out to the very far parts. Still considered the temple, but not the temple proper. Paul would make a statement in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 saying that God has torn down the wall of partition that separates us from him. Some people say that that's what they think Paul is talking about. There was a wall of partition, there was a gate that separated the Gentiles from coming in. And Paul is saying God in Christ, God tore that wall of separation down to where we could come in to worship God. So, anyway, so where this is taking place as they are bringing these animals, they're not going to bring in the court of the women. They're not going to bring in the court of, court of men. They're definitely not going to bring it into the uh, temple proper. They're going to have, be doing this outside in the court of the Gentiles. So two things we need to see here. Two reasons that this was a bad thing. And two reasons this, this, this brings this bad reaction from Christ. We see that Christ is offended. As you look through these passages, there is no doubt. There is no doubt that he is offended. Why is he offended? Here's why he's offended. Because what they are doing, number one, they are being irreverent. This is still a part of the temple. It's still a part of the temple mount. And they are bringing their animals there. How dignified can you be with sheep, goat, bulls, and pigeons all of their doing what they do naturally? It is so irreverent. uh, What they could have done, they could have set set up outside of the city. They could have set up somewhere else and done this. But they chose, you see, because as time goes by, they're becoming more desensitized and desensitized and desensitized to worship. They're not doing it just because they love God anymore. They're doing it because it's traditionally the way they always do it. And so to make that more convenient for them, they move this this trade, this commerce, into the Temple Mount. And Jesus comes in and he is appalled at what they're doing. Now Jesus had been here many times before. Uh, because he didn 't just start when he was thirty years old, he 'd been coming his whole life, but his ministry had not begun yet, so he didn 't do this. But now his ministry has begun, so Jesus is offended, and he 's offended because of the irreverence of worship. when we come to God. now this isn 't just ta- speaking of we shouldn 't relate this to a church house, to a church building, because the church building is not the church, right who 's the church? You're the church. I'm the church. This is referring to the worship of God as believers, not necessarily a building. But what they're doing is they're being irreverent. What God demands is reverence and respect and worship. Jesus, again I'll say this, Jesus is serious about the worship of God. We should also be serious about the worship of God. And the last thing they were doing was being serious about the worship of God. It was just something they did to check it off the list. And it, 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 it's so uh, perverted now and so backwards now that they don't even mind bringing the animals into the temple. It is total and absolute irreverence. Now, you go back to the Old Testament and see how God dealt with things like this. When uh, the, the two priests who were the sons of Aaron came into the tabernacle and they were actually in the tabernacle there and they offered incense on the altar but it was strange fire. They did it in a way they weren't supposed to. They offered a sacrifice. They offered incense but they didn't do it how they were supposed to do it. You know what the Bible says God did? God sent a ball of fire from the altar and consumed them. That's how God dealt with that. You, you go fast forward a little bit to the times of David. And David had um, U- 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 Uzzah. U- what David was going to do is to bring the, the, uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant had been put away from Israel. And then they brought it back, but it wasn't in its proper place. So when David became king, he said, I'm going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back in. And so he did it. He didn't go to the scriptures and find out how the ark was supposed to be moved and what the process was. He just said, I'm going to bring it back. So they put it on a cart and they began to bring it all the way back to where it was supposed to be. And, and, and Uza was there and, and he was trying to make sure everything went right and the, the animal was carrying it. And then the animal stumbled. Do you remember that story? When the animal stumbled, what happened? The ark began to slip. And, and Uza, all he did, I, I don't know if it was malicious or not, All he did is he reached back to touch the ark to keep it from falling into the dirt. God immediately struck Uzzah dead because God commanded that no one is to touch the ark. God would have been better pleased with the ark falling in the mud than touching man's sinful hands. God was serious about his worship. You have to do it this way. Uh, the Bible says that he is a jealous God. Don't go off serving other gods and worshiping other gods. You have to worship me. But not only worship me, you have to worship me in the way I set out to be worshipped. Or it is not acceptable. It is an offense. And so that's what we see happening here. It offended him because of the irreverence. And also it offended him because of the obstacle that it chose. They were stopping the Gentiles from worshiping. This is probably the heart of what was going on here. They so hated Gentiles that they didn't care what the Gentiles did. They didn't even want the Gentiles to be able to step foot in the court of the Gentiles. So they turned that into the place where they sold the animals. To drive them away because they hated the Gentiles so much. And this offended Jesus he, he said, you have turned my father's house into a place of commerce. This is not right. It offends me and God does not accept this worship. They, so we see that, that worship should be reverential and worship should be full of love to God and being kind to others. And that's not what they were doing. And it offended Christ. So we see, see Jesus' offense. Then we see Jesus' actions. So we understand that Jesus was offended because this is his father's house. And he said it was my father's house. And and that really would have offended the Jews listening because the Jews at this time didn't call God their father. They they wouldn't call God their father because they believe that puts you in the place of God. And so they call him many things, but they don't call him father. Jesus called him father, and Jesus meant what he was saying because he was the son of God. But then we see his actions. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You do not make my father's house a house of trade. So here is what Jesus did. We see that he was offended. That was his feelings on the matter. But what did he do? He made a whip. Now I, I don't think we don't see an indication that he whipped people, that he hurt people. We don't see that he he did that. But he was an intimidating force, and they begin to leave. He drove the animals out. The people left his well. He took the tables. He wasn't trying to do this nice and orderly. He took the tables and threw them over, scattering the money everywhere. He drove the animals out. He told the people with the pigeons because he couldn't drive the pigeons out. He said, open up their uh, cages and let them go. This will not be, I will not allow it. And this is a picture of Jesus' judgment. He's not only offended by the false worship and the bad worship of the people, he is going to judge them because of it. What we see here and what this is showing us is his rejection of the of, of the religious system of the day. You see they they were trying to work themselves to God. They were trying to do certain things to please God, if they even cared about that. Really, they just wanted to look religious, most of them. They wanted to dress the part, talk the part, and people to respect them. It wasn't about reverencing God. They wanted people to reverence them. And Jesus hated this form of worship. It was something he would not accept. His father would not accept. And so he's showing his rejection of their worship. Can you imagine a type of worship that God would reject? But we see it here presented in the temple. So we see His actions. But then we see His disciples. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume. Now I want to look real quickly at Psalm 69 verse 9. This is the the verse that they thought about when they watched all this happen. Uh, The word of God was on their minds... And they thought about Psalm 69, verse 9. (coughs) Psalm 69, verse 9. Here's what it says. For zeal for your house has consumed me. That's all they quoted. But then there's more to that verse. It says this. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So here's what... Everything they're thinking, everything they're seeing, Jesus, his zeal is eating him up. He is so passionate for the worship of God. He is so passionate for the things of God. And he said, the offenses has fallen on me. This is something they're doing to God, but the writer said, I'm offended because of it. I am hurt because of it. Do we connect ourselves with the things of God that it hurts us when people are being so irreverent to God? When people have this form of worship where they think they're working their way to heaven or or, or trying to cause other people to think they have to look a certain way, live a certain way, act a certain way in order to get to heaven. Does that offend us? It's an offense on the things of God when salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It should offend us when people bring false worship to God. It offended David. It offended Jesus. And Jesus was not going to stand for it. He stood against it. It offended him. And he performed actions that showed it offended him. And the disciples watched. And they were reminded of the scriptures. So they were... Focused on him. They were focused on the word of God. And they understood exactly what he was doing. Do we understand what he was doing? Do we understand the seriousness of worship? And the seriousness of, of bringing unwanted worship to God? Undesirable, false, wrong worship. You see, what they did, even in changing the money in the temple and bringing the animals, they still called it worship. But they were changing the meaning of worship. They were doing what was convenient. They were doing what was mean to others. And they were doing it all in the name of God. And God said, this is not of me. And we know that God said that because Jesus said that. He said, this this is irreverent. He said, "Do, do not make my father's house a house of trade. It offended him and he showed it. So, at best, at best, The people thought that they were honoring God and were wrong. At worst, they didn't care what God thought. They didn't care if it pleased God. They didn't care if it was right worship. They were going to do it because it's what pleased them. When that becomes our worship, we have overstepped our boundaries. We have overstepped our boundaries. Well, I like it this way because I like it this way. Well, we should want it to be whatever God says. You see we believe that God gets to say how he wants to be worshipped and God gets to say how he doesn't want to be worshipped. We believe that the scripture is authoritative for us today in our own lives and we know he wants to be worshipped collectively as a church and he wants to be worshipped individually as individual Christians. We know that. Let's do it and let's Ask God to test our hearts and to show us if there be any wicked way in us. That things that maybe, Lord, I've been doing this wrong. I need to change this. God, I want to be more like you. I want to honor you. I want to please you with my life because you take this so seriously. I want to take it seriously. God, I have things in my life. I'm coming to you and I'm asking prayers and I'm performing services in the church. Yet my life isn't what you want it to be as a Christian there was even a time when when Jesus would say, "If you come to the temple to give an offering and you remember that you have an offense against a brother, you leave your money don't give the offering. Go back and make it right with them, and then come and give your offering we We want God to accept whatever we want him to accept god i 'm living in sin, but hey i 'm still a christian god i 'm living an ungodly lifestyle that you." deem as wrong in your word but I'm not going to let that deter me I say I'm doing just fine when God says we're not doing just fine He is serious about His worship we must be serious about His worship we must love the worship of God and we must be zealous about the worship of God and if we find ourselves slipping if we find ourselves doing things we shouldn't do if we find our lives not lining up with what He said then we need to repent and say oh god forgive me i see where i've done wrong through your word god forgive me and i'm going to make it right do we allow god to have that type of work in our hearts or will we build a wall up against him and say god i'm still going to say i'm doing right i'm going to hold on and i'm not going to move i think i'm doing just fine that's not what God wants from us. He wants us to see our wickedness. He wants us to see where we make mistakes. And He wants us to confess and repent and do right. That's what He wants from our lives. Now this isn't how we get saved. This isn't, this isn't us working our way into heaven. But as Christians, we should desire to be like Him. And we should be desiring as Christians to give Him the worship He desires. That should be our hearts. Let's pray together. Father. We come before you in the precious name of Jesus. We're so thankful for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for loving us. We thank you that you do give us in your word the right and proper outline for what you want from our lives. God, let us be submissive to it and not hard-hearted. and